Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Of all the issues that divide red states from blue ones, none are more volatile than guns. The bill is passed without objection. The you may not know it, but a piece of legislation already passed by the House would make gun permits like driver's licenses. If you're allowed to carry a handgun in Wyoming, you can carry it on any street in America. I think the aim of this bill is to simply allow responsibly armed Americans to, to be able to travel and, and, and continue to defend their families. And carry concealed firearms. And carry concealed firearms. Anywhere. Yes. I think it would be a disaster for New York City uh, and I think for major cities around the country. Put your hands in. Grigory Rodchenkov is waiting for a bullet. In 2015, he escaped to the United States, carrying the files of Russia's doping program. He asked us to disguise his appearance. There is information that my life in jeopardy. Is it the Kremlin that wants to kill you? Kremlin wants me to stop talking. Vladimir Putin wants you to stop talking. Yes. And people who cross Vladimir Putin often die of mysterious circumstances. Yes, yes, even on U.S. soil. We want to be counted! Democratic Senator Kirsten Gillibrand has become one of the most prominent political faces of the Me Too movement. She has called out President Trump for alleged sexual misconduct, as well as former supporter President Bill Clinton for the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Gillibrand was also the first to publicly call for Senator and friend Al Franken to resign. Enough is enough. Not a popular move. Where's my moral compass if I can't speak out just because I like someone, just because they're my friend? It's okay to be a harasser as long as you're my friend. That is not okay. I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Scott Pelley. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm Sharon Alfonsi. I'm Bill Whitaker. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time and your financial solutions can too. 
Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you? That's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love. Or visit www.pacificlife.com. Of all the political and cultural issues that divide red states from blue ones, none is more volatile than guns and who can carry them. Conservative rural states like Arizona and West Virginia allow almost anyone to carry a loaded firearm in public, while in urban states and big cities, it can be a felony. But a piece of legislation quietly churning its way through Congress may change all that by making gun permits more like driver's licenses, transportable across state lines. If you're allowed to carry a concealed weapon in your home state, you would be allowed to carry it in all of them. The Concealed Carry Reciprocity Act has already sailed through the House of Representatives and has the full support of President Trump. It has roughly 40 co-sponsors in the Senate where a showdown is shaping up between the gun lobby and law enforcement over states' rights and the Second Amendment. <laughs> this is the handgun counter at Van Sporting Goods outside Jackson, Mississippi, a state with the fourth highest gun fatality rate in the country and some of the weakest gun laws. These are good for ankles, hip, or inside the pocket. Pretty much anyone 18 years of age and not a convicted felon can carry one of these concealed weapons here in their pocket, their pants, or their purse for self-defense against muggers, carjackers, and other assailants. You need it, it's ready to go. If the Concealed Carry Reciprocity Act becomes law, they'll be able to carry them legally across state lines and onto the streets of any city in America. I think the aim of this bill is to simply allow responsibly armed Americans to, to be able to travel and, and, and continue to defend their families. And carry concealed firearms. And carry concealed firearms. Anywhere. Yes, yes. Tim Schmidt is president and founder of the United States Concealed Carry Association. Along with the National Rifle Association and other gun rights groups, they have successfully sold the bill in conservative red states as a simple, common-sense solution to a hodgepodge of confusing, contradictory state laws they say infringe upon Americans' rights to bear arms. These laws change on a quarterly basis, if not more often. So you can easily go from being a responsibly armed citizen who's 100% legal to being a criminal just by crossing state lines. But there's fierce opposition to it in places like California, where there are strict gun laws and concealed carry permits are difficult to obtain. It's one of eight states that generally require thorough background checks, at least some firearms training, and a proven need to carry a handgun. In another 30 states, it's easier to get a concealed carry permit, and in many of those, there's no requirement to be proficient in the use of firearms. A dozen states have no requirements at all. Robin Thomas, the executive director of the Giffords Law Center to prevent gun violence, says forcing states to accept any and all gun permits would make the weakest laws in the country the new norm. Someone who lives in Nevada 
who's able to carry a loaded concealed weapon in Nevada could now bring that loaded gun into Los Angeles, into San Francisco, and carry their loaded weapon, even though in San Francisco that's not someone who would get a permit. So this law would essentially usurp the gun laws in cities like New York and Chicago and Los Angeles? Absolutely. To blue state liberals who favor gun control, it may sound like a right-wing fantasy. But to the National Rifle Association, which contributed $30 million to Donald Trump's presidential campaign and claims credit for his victory, it's their top legislative priority. And with midterm elections this year, nothing is taken for granted. In 2013, a similar bill failed by just three votes. The NRA declined to give us an interview for this story, but its position is well documented on its website. This is the voice of its leader, Wayne LaPierre, right after the last election. This is our historic moment to go on offense and defeat the forces that have aligned against our freedom once and for all. I call on Congress and the president-elect to pass national right to carry reciprocity as quickly as it can be written and signed. The individual right to carry a firearm in defense of our lives and our families does not and should not end at any state line. As proof of injustice, the NRA and other gun rights advocates use the case of Shanine Allen as ammunition. In 2013, while driving from Philadelphia to Atlantic City, New Jersey, the single mother and mugging victim was pulled over with a pistol in her purse and a valid concealed carry permit from her home state of Pennsylvania. Let me tell you a story. Congressman Richard Hudson of North Carolina, who authored the House version of the Concealed Carry Reciprocity Act, told Allen's story on the day the House passed the bill. What she didn't know is that New Jersey didn't recognize Pennsylvania's concealed carry permits. So this single mom who never had a run-in with the law spent almost two months in jail and was facing 10 years in prison because she'd crossed that state line. How was the case finally adjudicated? Governor Chris Christie stepped in and pardoned her. Um, otherwise, like I say, she was facing 10 years in prison. How often does that happen? Well, once is too much. These are law-abiding citizens. These are not the problem. The large constituency for this message is a long way from the New Jersey Turnpike, in the red states that stretch from the Carolinas through the mountains of the far west. It is the political fault line of regional and cultural differences that split the country, and guns are one of the triggers. Hey. They're woven into the culture here, passed down from generation to generation in rural, remote parts of the country, where dialing 911 does not always bring immediate help. The people here, whether they're single mothers worried about robbers and rapists while driving their kids across state lines to soccer matches, or ranchers worried about rattlesnakes, guns are a security blanket of self-reliance and protection. They keep them safe. For me, it's just a way of life. It's like when I get up in the morning and I get dressed, I get my wallet, I get my watch, I get my keys, I get my phone. It's the same thing to get my gun. But in most big cities like Los Angeles, Chicago, Washington, D.C., and New York, Guns are a cause of fear and concern, not comfort. And law enforcement is lined up against strangers from faraway places walking around their cities with loaded guns in violation of their own laws. I think it would be a disaster for New York City uh, and I think for major cities around the country. I think it's insanity. Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance and New York City Police Commissioner James O'Neill say their city has the most to lose. Every year, New York takes in nearly 50 million visitors from all over the country into a congested, sometimes chaotic city. 
Even if a tiny fraction were legally carrying concealed weapons, it would mean hundreds of thousands of additional guns for what is right now the safest big city in America. You bring that kind of volume of firepower, even with well-intentioned people, uh, it's going to be extremely dangerous. More guns, more violence. That's what you're saying. Absolutely. They're not just worried about more crime, but an increase in suicides, gun accidents, and heated arguments turning into lethal altercations. And with no national database for concealed carry permits, the NYPD says it would not be able to immediately determine whether someone was legally carrying or not. Right now, we, we have a good idea of, of who's carrying guns. If this law passes, the, all bets are off. Anybody can come into New York City from any state and, and carry a weapon. I wouldn't presume to tell the residents of West Virginia what their gun laws should be. They've figured out what they want there, but I don't think they or Congress should be having West Virginia's laws put on New York City. The people who are strongest against this bill are law enforcement. Vance and O'Neill have established a formidable coalition of prosecutors and police chiefs from nearly every big city in America to lobby senators to keep the Concealed Carry Reciprocity Act from becoming law. Representative Hudson, there's huge opposition to this bill among police departments in major cities in the United States. Houston, Tucson, Metropolitan D.C., Boston, New York City, Baltimore, Seattle. These are all cities where the chief of police has come out against this law. I can, I, there are more if you want me to read more. Sure. Well, look, how I, do you explain that? I mean, there are folks on both sides of the argument, uh, and I think good folks on both sides who, uh, who, are, who are honestly trying to protect their citizens. I just disagree with the conclusions. So you're saying New York or Los Angeles or Chicago, big cities, have no right to pass any laws that regulates who can carry a, a weapon. These cities and these states can, can still continue to have whatever laws they want to protect their Except citizens. they can't have a law that prohibits someone from carrying a concealed weapon. Right. Just like a driver's license. You can't say you can't drive here. It's not just like a driver's license, because to get a driver's license, you have to demonstrate a proficiency and, and establish that you're not going to endanger the public and that you understand all the laws governing it. But that's not the case in terms of possessing, uh, right. getting a concealed carry permit. But driving's a privilege. Owning a firearm is a constitutionally protected right, so there is a difference. The central tenet of concealed carry reciprocity is that the Second Amendment gives people the right to carry guns anywhere they want. But that idea is more aspirational than factual. Is there such a thing? Absolutely not. In fact, the Supreme Court has ruled on the Second Amendment in 2008. And what the Supreme Court said is that you have a right to have a handgun in your home for self-defense. And it absolutely does not include a right to carry a loaded concealed weapon in public. And right up until the Supreme Court says it is your right, that is a fallacy that they're pushing in the hopes that it will become the truth, but it simply isn't the truth as of right now. But Tim Schmidt of the U.S. Concealed Carry Association thinks it should be. The Bill of Rights doesn't say that anybody can walk around with a gun in their pocket or a gun in their holster, uh, a concealed weapon. It doesn't say that. See, with all due respect, it actually does. It says you have the right to keep and bear arms and it shall not be infringed. Telling me where I can and can't carry a gun, telling me where I can and can't protect my family and loved ones, that's an infringement. Yes, it's gone on for a long time in our country, but we're finally fixing it. 
As in almost all political arguments today, each side comes equipped with alternative facts and opposition research, allowing people to believe whatever they want. The NRA claims the only way to stop bad guys with guns is to have more good guys with guns. It will make people safer. And its facts, as recited by Representative Hudson of North Carolina, claim it's working. But I can tell you that, uh, you know, in the last 20 years, you've seen a, a, a huge uptick in gun ownership. You've seen a huge uptick in concealed carry permit holders. And at the same time, you've seen violent crime drop. If you look at the states that have constitutional carry, you've seen violent crime drop. Are you saying that the more guns that are out there, the safer the population is? I don't know if I'd go quite that far, but, you know, I'm not going to come out here and say the the solution to gun violence is give everyone a gun. Um, But I'm also saying that's not going to necessarily increase violence. That conclusion has been refuted by numerous studies, as well as testimony from chiefs of police like Edward Flynn in Milwaukee, who says Wisconsin's six-year experiment with lax concealed carry laws has been a disaster. Every year since that law was passed in 2011, every year, non-fatal shootings have gone up, gun-related homicides have gone up, and the number of guns seized from the streets by our department has gone up. That's what our cockamamie law has done here. Why is this bill so important to the NRA? The goal is of the gun lobby to have what they call constitutional carry, which means that you, anyone can have a gun anywhere, anytime, because the Constitution and the Second Amendment, in their view, says that. And so the world that they imagine is one where everyone can have a gun. That's not the world that I think I want to live in, but that's the world that I think they're trying to create. Whether people like it or not, that world already exists in many parts of the country, where people are quite happy with it, and so are the representatives in Congress. It's expected that just a handful of votes in the U.S. Senate will decide whether it becomes the law of the land. One flag missing from this month's Olympics is Russia's. Russia is banned because during the last Winter Games, the Russian government engineered a doping scheme that cheated clean athletes. We know this because the man who ran the doping told the world. But Grigory Rodchenkov's story is more than just a tale of Olympic cheating. It's a window into Vladimir Putin's Russia. Rodchenkov came out of hiding to speak with us because he hopes this interview might save his life. Put your hand here. Grigory Rodchenkov is waiting for a bullet. In 2015, he escaped to the United States, carrying the files of Russia's doping program. He asked us to disguise his appearance. This was done for security reasons. There is information that my life in jeopardy, and we took all necessary steps. Is it the Kremlin that wants to kill you? Kremlin wants me to stop talking. Vladimir Putin wants you to stop talking. Yes. And people who cross Vladimir Putin often die of mysterious circumstances. Yes, yes, even on U.S. soil. In his disguise, you can't see what he looks like these days, so he doesn't mind us showing you what he looked like back in 2015, when he was the director of Russia's anti-doping lab in Moscow. He was a former college athlete with a degree in chemistry and a lifelong interest in performance-enhancing drugs. Was it your aim in the Moscow lab to catch cheaters or protect cheaters? It was dual, you know. Of course, 
as each accredited laboratory, we have to report certain percentile of positives, 1% to 2% of positives. But on the other hand, we have to protect Russian national team, and the ultimate goal was win at any cost at World Championships and Olympics. To win at any cost at the World Championships and the Sochi Olympics? Including Sochi Olympics. It was the same concept which remains untouchable since Soviet time. Like in Soviet times, the Kremlin will tell you today that Rodchenkov is a criminal and mentally ill. In 2011, he and his sister were investigated for selling performance-enhancing drugs. When you were under investigation at that time, you tried to take your own life? Yes, because they tried to blackmail me, to threaten me. They asked me to tell lies about my sister, otherwise you will go to prison. What did you do? I punched knife to my heart. An emergency room saved his life, and soon the Kremlin would change his life. Russia! Russia! Russia was preparing to host the 2014 Winter Games in Sochi. Vladimir Putin was determined to win, and mysteriously the investigation against Russia's doping mastermind was dropped. Who got you out of that jam? Of course, Putin. But it had different... Vladimir Putin? Yes. So Vladimir Putin, in your estimation, needed you? Yes. Russian Federation! Sochi was the first Olympics hosted by Russia since 1980. <laughs> to win at any cost, Rodchenkov formulated an illicit performance-enhancing prescription that contained three banned drugs. He told us the bobsled team was among those using his concoction. At the end of the games, Russia came out on top with 33 medals. How many Russian golds were there in Sochi? 13, one, three. And of the 13, how many of those do you believe were won by athletes who were dirty? Five. What sports were those? Biathlon. Skiing, bobsled, and skeleton. Five medals, by the way, was the difference between first place and the second place finish of the United States. No Russian athlete was ever found dirty at the Sochi Games. During Sochi Games, no one. At Sochi, athletes gave urine samples after their competitions. The samples went into these tamper-proof bottles used by the International Olympic Committee and the World Anti-Doping Agency. When the cap is tightened, it locks, and to be removed, it must be destroyed. The bottles were then delivered to this high-security lab on the grounds of the Games. Now, this area shaded in red, this is the secure area? Correct. The lab had a secure side and a non-secure side, separated by a locked door. It's absolutely impossible even to touch this door. This door only for emergency exit. There are cameras from both sides, and immediately opening this door, you have alarm and the security uh, people sitting controlling the whole laboratory. By day, Rodchenkov was the director of the Olympic anti-doping lab. By night, he was Russia's director of doping. His accomplice was this man, Yevgeny Blokin. What was his job? Uh, he was a plumber, officially, taking care about the cleaning. 
He was supposed to be a plumber. Yes, he has his plumber uh, badge. Yevgeny the plumber was an agent of the Russian intelligence service, the FSB. Rodchenkov says that he, his assistants, and FSB agents worked through the night to replace dirty Russian urine samples with clean samples that had been collected and frozen before the games. What is this? This is mouse hole from room 125. This hole near the floor with a cover on it was built into the lab as a secret pass-through from the high-security side to the non-secure side. So you've got this super high-security laboratory and nobody notices that? Because there is a drawer. Oh, it was behind a piece of furniture. Of course. Ah. And you take it, it's a small drawer, you take it away. So simple and so effective. So simple and so effective. effective. Yes. The dirty Russian samples were passed through the hole. Yevgeny the plumber put them in his tool bag and walked them to a Russian intelligence operation nearby. Who figured out how to open those bottles? FSB experts. The FSB Genius. experts. Geniuses. Absolutely. I never saw how it was done. I saw only the same miracle. Bottle was closed and now bottle is opened. The tamper-proof bottles were filled with clean urine. Rodchenkov made sure that the chemistry of the sample was normal in every way, and then the bottles were closed and slipped back through the mouse hole. This was cheating on an industrial scale. Correct. Rodchenkov told us the details of the plot were known to Vitaly Mutko, Russia's Minister of Sport. Vitaly Mutko reported to whom? Vitaly Mutko reported to Putin. They are friends since early years in St. Petersburg, since 90s. And do you believe that Putin was aware of the doping program? I do believe. Moreover, Mutko was telling me that Putin has permanent concern how preparation to Sochi is ongoing, whether we have any problem, whether we need any other support. He was telling the Minister of Sport and through him, you, that you could have anything you needed. Exactly. The Russian government admits there are Russian athletes who have cheated, but it claims that it wasn't the Kremlin. It was Rodchenkov alone. Putin says you're a liar. I'm not a liar. I was, I was not telling truth in Russia, but coming to the United States, I'm telling truth. In 2015, Rodchenkov was forced out of the Moscow lab, not for Sochi, but because the World Anti-Doping Agency found that Russians were dirty in the 2012 London Games. There he is. He fled to Los Angeles with the help of Brian Fogel, <laughs> a filmmaker shooting a documentary about Rodchenkov. When you came to the United States, did you bring anything with you? Yes. I brought with me backup of my Moscow and such a computer, because in a big computer, uh, office computer, I destroyed all files following order from FSB. But you kept some of the information about the Sochi scheme on your laptop and you brought it with you? Yes. Rodchenkov told his story in the documentary titled Icarus, which is nominated this year for an Academy Award. He also told the New York Times and the World Anti-Doping Agency. The agency found witnesses who backed up his story and marks left by the tools used to tamper with the tamper-proof bottles. 
Russia was stripped of 13 Sochi medals. More than 100 Russians were banned from the Rio Games. And at the current Winter Games, Russia itself has been disqualified. Although some Russian athletes not under suspicion are competing under the Olympic flag. All of these sanctions add up to reasons for revenge. Do you believe that Grigori's life is in danger? There's no question about that. Attorney Jim Walden is trying to get the U.S. government to let Rodchenkov stay so he won't be deported to Russia, where he is a wanted man. They are desperate to silence him. And the day after the International Olympic Committee uh, banned the Russians, law enforcement came to me and said that security protocols needed to be changed immediately because we had to, had to assume that there was a team of Russians here looking for him. American law enforcement told you that? Correct. So it couldn't be more serious. How do you think this ends for him? I think Gregory has so much incredible experience um, with doping that he can be a powerful tool for anti-doping authorities. Do you believe the Olympics can ever be clean? You could believe, but in fact, it's a, it's a human nature. It's our sins. It has nothing to do with sports. But there are 10% or 15% of people who are incorrigibles. You can do nothing. They are cheaters by their natures, incorrigibles, 15%. How many countries are doping? 20 plus. 20 plus. For sure. We have nine urines. Grigory Rodchenkov was a cheater by nature and incorrigible, to use his word. His recipes for banned drugs are now well known among competitors and are likely to outlive him. So now it's a big, big problem, and I'm sorry to creating such problem because of my experience and knowledge. You are sorry that you created this? Yes, because now it's effective and working and it's not my contribution to fight against doping. Absolutely not. Earlier this month, an international court removed the lifetime bans on two-thirds of the Russian athletes allegedly caught doping at Sochi. The court said there was insufficient evidence against the athletes themselves. As a result, nine of the 13 medals taken from the Russians were reinstated. Vitaly Mutko, the former Russian minister of sport, was promoted to deputy prime minister after the Sochi victory. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand has spent years fighting the problems of sexual assault and harassment in the military and on college campuses. Now, the junior senator from New York is calling for a reckoning on her own campus, Capitol Hill. She has called out the President of the United States and longtime Democratic allies like former President Bill Clinton and Senator Al Franken. That candor and her willingness to be out front, often alone, has made her both a lightning rod and one of the most prominent political faces of the Me Too movement. In December, she was the first to publicly call for Senator Al Franken to resign. I have a 14-year-old son, and I cannot have a conversation that says, well, it's okay to grab somebody here, but not there. It's not okay at all. You don't grab women. Uh, you don't push yourself on them. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand told us Minnesota Democrat Al Franken is a friend. But after eight women accused him of sexual misconduct, she was the first to publicly say he needed to go. We just heard allegation after allegation. Uh, they were credible allegations. I believed the women. 
Franken hoped a congressional investigation would clear him. It's going to take a long time for me to regain people's trust. Enough is enough. But Gillibrand was unwilling to wait. You're a lawyer. You believe in due process. Why not allow? He's entitled to as much due process as he wants. He doesn't ever have to resign. That's his choice. But it, it feels and like... And my choice is to speak out. But it feels like to be accused right now is to be convicted. That's that. not right. That's not true. Uh, uh, one of my colleagues recently was accused of something. Not only did he call the police, uh, but there will be an investigation. But uh, what is the harm in in waiting and letting all the facts come out and to going into an investigation? Where's the harm in that? Where's my moral compass if I can't speak out just because I like someone, just because they're my friend? It's okay to be a harasser as long as you're my friend. That is not okay. Furious Democrats called her a traitor. But on this subject, Gillibrand is unapologetic. She took on Democratic icon Bill Clinton. In her Washington office, she told us why she now believes Clinton should have resigned amid the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Your critics will say, what's going on here? You know, she took Senator Clinton's seat. She campaigned with Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton. And now all of a sudden, she's saying he should have resigned. Because I wasn't, I wasn't focused on it in the way I am today. I didn't have that lens. What do you mean that had that all lens? All of us. Yeah. I, I think... I'm not alone here. Like, how many of us were having this conversation even a year ago? We're learning. I think we're all learning. Have you spoken to the Clintons since you said this? Well, I don't want to talk about that, but um, I can tell you one thing. I can tell you that uh, Hillary Clinton is still my greatest role model in politics. Gillibrand also called out President Donald Trump for a long history of alleged sexual misconduct. The accusations aren't knew against him. The voters saw the Access Hollywood tape and voted for him anyway. Mm -hmm. So why now? Once President Trump was elected, I think something changed. Mm -hmm. And I think it changed for women. Do you think he'll be held accountable well, in any I, way? I think he should resign. And if he's unwilling to do that, which is what I assume, mm -hmm. then Congress should hold him accountable. We are obligated to have hearings. President Trump responded to Gillibrand's criticism by trolling her on Twitter. He called her a lightweight. He wrote she would be begging for contributions and would, quote, do anything for them. How did you interpret that? As being a sexist smear. There's ways to undermine women and belittle women, and that's one of them, mm -hmm. and to minimize them and to silence them. Gillibrand tweeted back, you cannot silence me, about the unfitness and shame you have brought to the Oval Office. In this Twitter fight, Gillibrand drew six times more retweets than the president. You've said uh, you think Congress is an old boys club. Do you still think that? Oh, it's definitely an old boys club. We only have 21 women in the U.S. Senate. We need 51, mm -hmm. and that will be representative of the nation. Why do you think more women haven't run in the past? I think fear. I think they thought someone fear. else would take care of it. Mm -hmm. I think it's hard to run for office. It's, it, you know, a lot of women don't like the negative campaigning. They don't like the aggressiveness of it. Gillibrand entered the political fray in 2006 when she ran for Congress in a reliably Republican district known for having more cows than Democrats. Surprisingly, she won. In early 2009, another surprise. Kirsten Gillibrand. Then New York Governor David Patterson named little-known Gillibrand to finish Hillary Clinton's Senate term when she became Secretary of State. 
This is the seat that everybody wanted. Andrew Cuomo apparently wanted it. Caroline Kennedy wanted it. And you got it. Yeah. It was pretty shocking. I don't know. Did you ever ask him, why'd you choose me? No. (laughs) I just said, thank you. (laughs) Welcome, Senator. She was nicknamed the accidental senator, but quickly earned a reputation as a hard worker. Some colleagues, unnerved by her peppy determination, called her something else. The name of the overachieving high school student in the movie Election. Oh, hi, Tracy. What did you think of being called Tracy Flick? I really like Reese Witherspoon, <laughs> so I didn't really care. I didn't care. I mean, I knew what they were trying to say. Yeah. They were trying to uh, be mean. But was that a sexist comment, saying that you were overly ambitious? Yes, of course. Of course it was. Gillibrand says she is ambitious and always has been. Married to British-born business consultant Jonathan Gillibrand. If you want a different bar, go pick one out. The couple has two sons. She is one of only two female senators with young children. She was raised Catholic in Albany, New York. So this is where I grew up. This is my house. Part of a deeply connected political family. For more than 40 years, her grandmother, Polly Noonan, was a backroom power broker at the State House. It's called Noonan Lane. Noonan Lane. My grandmother bought all this property uh, a long, long time ago. And this is the pond where I learned how to canoe in the summer. I also learned how to skate in the winter. Her father was a lawyer and powerful lobbyist. Her mother, also named Polly, says he was the one who nicknamed Gillibrand Foghorn as a child. She was loud. She was so loud that at one point I said to my husband, I said, God, she's got to have a hearing problem. I think we better take her to the doctor for special testing. So we did. We had her tested, and the doctor said her hearing is fine. Gillibrand's mother was a trailblazer, too, a lawyer with a black belt in karate. She was also a dead-eye hunter who proudly put a turkey on the Thanksgiving table year after year. As a congresswoman, Gillibrand used that family tradition of hunting to appeal to conservative voters in upstate New York. She boasted an A rating from the NRA. Though Gillibrand still supports the Second Amendment, her stance has changed. A few years ago, you said it has nothing to do with hunting and it has nothing to do with the Second Amendment. So why the 180? After I got appointed, I um, went down to Brooklyn to meet with families who had suffered from gun violence in their communities. And you immediately experienced the feeling that I couldn't have been more wrong. You know, I only had the lens of upstate New York. But you had lived in New York City for a decade. And that's why you I was abroad. I was wrong. What it's about is the power of the NRA and the greed of that industry. Let's be clear, it is not about hunter's rights. It's about money. Your critics will say it's political opportunism. As is their right. They can say what they like. But it wasn't just her position on gun control that switched. As a congresswoman, her stance on immigration was closer to Donald Trump's than today's Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. So can you understand President Trump's position on immigration since you were there? No, I think his positions are racist. You were against amnesty, against sanctuary cities. You supported accelerated deportations. You become senator. Why the flip? I came from a district that was 98% white. We have immigrants, but not a lot of immigrants. And I hadn't really spent the time to hear those kind of stories about what it's like to worry that your dad could be taken away at any moment. What it's like. You were reading the paper. 
Yeah, and I didn't take the time to understand why these issues mattered because it wasn't right in front of me. And that was my fault. It was something that I'm embarrassed about and I'm ashamed of. It is not very often that you hear a politician say, I was wrong, I'm ashamed, mm -hmm. I didn't know. Mm -hmm. I just think as I've gotten older, I've learned more about life. And sometimes you're wrong and you've got to fix it. And if you're wrong, just admit it and move on. With nine years in the Senate, the 51-year-old Gillibrand has emerged as the political face of the Me Too movement, prompting talk about her taking on President Trump in 2020. It is an ambition Gillibrand denies, and she insists leading the fight against sexual assault has always been at the top of her political agenda. Sexual assault is reported to be the leading cause of post-traumatic stress disorder among women veterans. I've been working for five years on trying to end sexual violence in the military. I've been working on trying to clean up sexual assault on college campuses because too many universities shove this stuff under the rug. And I now I'm trying to clean up Congress. Gillibrand and other senators, including Republican Thank Ted Cruz, I want to commend Senator Gillibrand, are pressuring Congress to change the way it deals with its own harassment complaints. So today, if you are harassed in your office as a staffer here in Congress, you have to literally wait one month to have mandatory counseling, mm -hmm. followed by one month. Mandatory counseling for you? For, for you. The accuser? You, you, the accuser and then followed by one month of mandatory mediation with your harasser, followed by one month of cooling off, and then you're allowed to file your complaint. That is the status of the law today. Three months. Three months to wait. So what do you so think the intention of all of that is? To protect predators, uh, to protect members of Congress. As it is, members of Congress are allowed to settle harassment complaints with taxpayer money and keep it all confidential. There are no doubt many, many more who want to speak out. Gillibrand's call for transparency threatens to expose some of Capitol Hill's darkest secrets. She is unwavering in her crusade, telling us on a trip to New York City that she is guided by her faith. Yes, it really helps you remember that you know, we are here to help people. We are here to put others first, to live a day in their shoes, to understand what their life is like and try to make it better. It was Martin Luther King's birthday, and Gillibrand confessed to a childhood dream of her own. I wanted to be a preacher. Like, that was you one did? of the things I would have loved to have done, yeah. yeah. I was conflicted, though, because I'm a Catholic, and they don't like, they don't, Catholics don't let women speak in the church. Then, at a gathering in Harlem that afternoon, she quoted scripture like a Revival 10 evangelist. When the day of evil comes, you may stand your ground, and after you have done everything, you stand. For Gillibrand, that's often meant standing alone. Thank you, Reverend. Now, surrounded by an amen chorus. She's more determined than ever to be heard. Fifty seasons of 60 Minutes. This week from February 1996, when we broadcast Mike Wallace's interview with Dr. Jeffrey Wigand. Dr. Wigand was the former director of research for tobacco company Brown and Williamson. What he told us about cigarettes and the addictive properties of nicotine caused a firestorm within CBS. 
corporate executives fearing a multi-billion dollar lawsuit stopped 60 minutes from broadcasting the story. It took months to get the story on the air. We're in a nicotine delivery business. And that's what cigarettes are for. Most certainly. It's a delivery device for nicotine. A delivery device for nicotine. Put it in your mouth, light it up, and you're going to get your fix. You're going to get your fix. I'm Scott Pelley. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.